Welcome to Movie Ketchup, the podcast where two friends work to reduce their two watch list by watching each other's movie recommendations. I'm Leanne. And I'm Greg. We're a couple of pedantic assholes. Today, we're talking about someone like you and the importance of being earnest. But before we get into the movies, let's catch up. Greg, what's been happening with you recently? Uh, well, this is a topic I wanted to bring up that actually came up about five minutes ago. Um so one of the ways we're recording our sound for this podcast is using a bot in Discord named Craig. And I have a long and storied history with the name Craig. My name being Greg is very similar. My brother's best friend growing up was Craig. And it was constantly getting his mixed up. And I know, Leanne, you have uh, lots of experience as well with name mix-ups and difficulties with names. And so as soon as I saw this bot enter the chat, it gave me just, like, a panic attack. Just at the name alone. Yeah. It's great. It wasn't intentional, I promise. I know. When I was working uh, at my last job, I would go to McDonald's for lunch most days. And the server who was there when I was going for lunch almost every day, um, when he asked me my name the first day, I said Greg. He said, Craig? Okay, Craig. And I didn't correct him. And that was over a year, probably, of him calling me Craig. And people would come up and be like, did he just call you Craig? Does he not? And I'm like, yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> not correcting him. There's, de- There's definitely a point in your life where when somebody is saying your name wrong, you just accept it with abject resignation. You're like, yeah. Sure. It, like it whenever I go to time. like a Starbucks or something and they spell my name L-E-A-N-N-E, uh, or and if they ask me how I spell my name and then that's how they've done it, I'm just like, it's fine. Yeah. Like, we don't need well, to get into it. Well, what was that one guy that, like, wouldn't let it go, though? Wasn't it? I remember you telling me about that recently. Oh, I forget. This was a while ago because it's yeah. been several months since I was going to Starbucks regularly. But um, there was one day where it was, like, a girl. Um, I was on my way home from work, and I had to spell it for her, like, six or seven times, and it was just like, honestly, it's not important. Or maybe I was somewhere else. I forget. I have a lot of inc- I thought it was incidences a- with names yeah. Yeah. where people, my biggest frustration at work is people who I communicate with a lot from other offices who spell my name wrong when, like, the sender name on all of my emails is right there. My name is in my signature. Yeah. It's like... It's well, the most frustrating. And when I when I do try and correct someone and say it's Greg, not Craig, it just goes back and forth. It's like, Craig? No, Greg. Craig? No, Greg. Because I, I can't pronounce G's well, I guess. It's just, it's very hard. You have to go. I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of people who have like very. Greg. <laughs> yeah, there's some people out there who have like very basic names that for whatever reason, other people cannot pronounce. Like, I've heard stories about people, like, name Sarah, who have been called all manner of things that are not Sarah. So, I don't know. Yeah, names are fun. So, I'll just have to live with Craigbot and every time just shudder a bit inside. Well, well. you only have to face him when we're recording. Otherwise, he just lives in the server. So, what's been happening with you recently? My sister called me just before the end of the day today, and we ended up talking on the phone for probably an hour, like my entire drive home and a little bit after the fact. Um, 
I haven't seen the fam jam in a couple of weeks since we've gone into like full quarantine. Mm, yep. So last weekend, my mom called me and like the week before my dad called me. So my sister called me. So I'm like sort of progressively are, are you, working through. Are you dead? Are you alive? <laughs> I mean, I think everyone is aware that I'm alive because I exist it's on good. like social media and stuff like that. But it's different when you like actually talking to a person. So that it was kind of nice though. Just sort of like catch up about some things because we used to go out fairly regularly with uh, one another for coffee to catch up. And so when you're not communicating as frequently as before, it's nice to just have some time to talk to each other. It's commiserate about lack of product at the grocery store. Yeah. It's weird right now how like family members that you like live very close to, you feel so far away from because you're just like, the only way you're communicating with them is like text messages when you used to like go hang out with them and all the time and things like that. Just mm-hmm. a very weird time in general. I, I the other thing for Easter dinner, do you guys know what you're doing? Are you getting together? Yeah, the plan is to get together. My sister wants me to come over this weekend and I have some general household things to take care of. So I probably will. Yeah. And she was telling me how she had bought a turkey and she's like, Oh, we'll have turkey dinner. And I said, you know, we could do Easter this weekend instead of next weekend. And it was like, Oh yeah, like Easter's next weekend. So the plan is to also do some sort of Easter dinner that is as of yet determined exactly what that will be. So I don't know what's going on with my cousin who he lives out in mission. Um, but I'm not like in regular contact with him, but uh, like the only other sort of local person family wise that I haven't really heard from. So he works as a a garbage truck driver. So I think he's still working all of the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. The other weird thing about like this whole COVID-19 situation that's like not related to that at all is how cheap gas is right now. Oh, my God. Maple Ridge dropped under 90 today, which is crazy. It is 89 cents in Abbotsford today. Yeah. I was a little bit mad. Yesterday, I put I filled up um, my gas tank, and I paid 95 cents uh, out in where work is. And then when I got back to town and I saw that it was 89 cents, I was, like, a little bit miffed that I didn't get the cheaper gas. But, uh, like, at the same time. It's not a dollar forty, so I really shouldn't yeah. complain too much. Diesel is still stuck at one oh five, and I'm a little bit upset about it. Diesel used to always be cheaper, and now it's more expensive. But I mean, yeah. not really though. I mean, yeah, but not really. It's never been as expensive as regular gasoline. So. I was pretty regularly paying ten to thirty cents cheaper than gas, which is nice. But also, I have a very yeah, my car does not take a lot, so I'm okay. One thing I was thinking about um, with you, are you still making kombucha? What happened with your kombucha project? Oh, God, the kombucha project. Yeah, we don't talk about the kombucha project. Uh, I have, I think, three bottles of kombucha in my fridge that are months and months and months old that I have not finished drinking from my final batch. Are they alcoholic now from fermenting oh, so long? So, yeah, my last kombucha batch got moldy again. Oh, no. So I haven't really wanted... Oh, no, I threw that one out. So these were from the one before that that wasn't moldy. I did my first kombucha, and it was moldy. I threw that out. I rebought the SCOBY, did a whole kombucha thing again. It's a pain to set up. 
it's a lot of work just to set it up. It's really nice once you've got it set up because it just kind of goes. Yeah. But the getting it set up is the hard part. And then I got, waited a week, checked on it, it's moldy. So I threw that one out. Finally decided, you know what? I'm not going to give up right away. I'm going to try again. Had great kombucha. Second time, great kombucha. Third time, moldy again. And I just, I got fed up. It was really, really tasty. I think you tried the one batch I did. Yeah, I had some of the blackberry or whatever it was. Oh, you brought. yeah, it was good. But uh, it's something I want to get into again. Uh, the prevailing theory on it is that it was just so cold when and where I was doing it. And there's no, like, warm place in my house that's not um, closed off. You're not supposed to have it in, like, a cupboard or something. It needs to be able to breathe, but it also needs to be warm. There was just nothing really conducive to that. And I think that's one of the main reasons it was molding. Because if you can't get it acidic fast enough, it's got the potential to mold. But when it gets mm-hmm. acidic enough, it's supposed to be very anti-mold. I don't know. It's weird that even just putting it in a cupboard is detrimental. Because unless you're putting in like a sealed cupboard, just like a regular kitchen cupboard should have reasonable enough airflow, you'd think. It still just wasn't going to be warm enough in there, I think. Well, that's disappointing. I just, I was thinking about it the other day because you hadn't talked about it. So I figured I would ask. Yeah. Another thing I started, ditched, and don't talk about. One of many. Well, hopefully you get back to it and have some success. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, Should we get into talking about the movies then? Let's do it. Okay. So the first movie we're talking about today is Someone Like You. Uh, This movie is also known as Animal Attraction in the United Kingdom. It's released. It was released in 2001. And I just say that's that's a better name. Just (laughs) that's a better name. Uh, So it was released in 2001. It stars Ashley Judd, Hugh Jackman, Greg Kinnear, and Marissa Tomei. Uh, it was directed by Tony Goldwyn, who doesn't have a lot of movie director credits. He's actually an actor. Um, you would probably know him best as uh, Fitzgerald Grant from Scandal. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Oh, no. <laughs> So he's got a lot of, like, director credits for various TV shows, like The L Word, mm-hmm. Justified, and also Scandal. But, the L Word, um, ooh. Yeah. I think he must have been in an episode of The L Word, because it looks like most of the things that he's directed are projects that he's also been involved in from an actor perspective as well. Got it. But in terms of uh, film direction, um, there's this movie and like a couple other projects, and that's about hmm. about it. Um, so this story is based on a book by Laura Zygman called Animal Husbandry, which is where the title Animal Attraction comes from and sort of would be good. Uh, it has a tomato meter rating of 42%. Oof. And I just thought this was um, a fun sort of critics consensus I found when I was looking at it. It was described as a light and predictable, it's somewhat shallow romantic comedy that's easy to sit through because of the charming leads. And I think that's like a pretty accurate summary of the movie experience. So the premise of the movie is Jane Goodall, spelled D-A-L-E, has everything going for her. 
She's a producer of a popular daytime talk show and is in a hot romance with the show's dashing executive producer, Ray. When Ray unexpectedly dumps her, she begins an extensive study of male behavior to try to find out what makes men tick. Her research leads her to become an overnight sensation slash guru for single women everywhere. And when Jane begins to use her womanizing roommate and co-worker Eddie as fodder for her research, she finds both humor and answers where they were least expected. So, and the reason why I chose this movie was primarily because of like the old cow theory. Um, I just had such a humorous memory of that as part of the narrative. And also I just think that like Ashley Judd and Hugh Jackman have such good chemistry in this movie. And uh, I thought the way that they ultimately came together was really cute, really great. Um, just a feel good rom-com, which as you know, I love. So what did you think? It was, it was definitely one of those classic rom-coms uh, definitely carried by the leads for sure in this. Uh, it was really interesting, especially coming off our last episode, watching Hugh Jackman and Kate and Leopold and Hugh Jackman in this a year, I think it's a year apart, right? Um, I think they, they came out in the same year, actually. They both are 2001. Oh, both 2001? Okay, I thought yeah. the other one was 2002. Um, but it was very interesting because going from this, like... Um, aristocratic British noble to this smarmy man slut, I guess. It was very, very great diversity for Hugh Jackman. It was uh, interesting seeing a role like this. I usually He's got think range. Of, he does. I usually think of him in as more the gentlemanly type in a lot of his movies. It was great. Um, my big takeaway from the movie overall... Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that the, again, I said this last time, I'm not sure the ROM in the rom-com worked super well for me. Maybe it's just that I don't like a lot of the format things in rom-coms, but yeah, we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll kind of go in from the start, at least roughly. Um, I really, really like the cow metaphor that runs through the movie like you were talking about, it's a really strong kind of anchor point for the movie. I wish they'd almost brought it in a little bit more. It starts off with this theory of the old cow, uh, which is, I guess, essentially that um, a male cow, they they could get uh, the male cow to procreate with the female cow once, but then wanted to move on to a different cow. That cow is now the old cow. Even masking that cow in some other cow's scent still couldn't get the male cow to go back to that cow wanted to move on to other cows. Um, this very hilarious metaphor that plays throughout, but it doesn't kind of come back to later on, but it is kind of, was the kind of stronger point of the movie for me. I mean, the initial part of that is, you know, it's framed as like, this is what got me into trouble, but also like, you know, there's a lot of things that led up to that. So yeah. it was just, you know, this is the, the narrative piece, but also there's a lot of other things that we need to cover before that becomes relevant. One thing I really liked through that section was, I don't know if you notice this, that there's like the male and the female science researcher yeah, yeah, who yeah, yeah, yeah. are also shown to like be showing interest in each other. And then like, they've obviously yeah. had sex and then, you know, she's still interested, but he's clearly yeah. moved past it. 
And so for the first third or half of the movie, uh, we're introduced to, oh, I didn't write down names. I believe it's Ray is the love interest that's clearly the wrong one. Is it Ray? I like that actor a lot. Um, oh, God. Do you have it on you? Ray Kinnear? Yeah, I love him. What's his character's name? Ray. Ray. That was Ray. Okay. Uh, so we're introduced to Ray, who is um, has a girlfriend of three years, but that doesn't seem to put off... Uh, oh, God. I'm forgetting her name. Oh, Jane, obviously. Uh, Jane doesn't seem to be put off by this, that he's got a girlfriend of three years, and... It's like at lunch with her sassy, her sassy sidekick girlfriend who is like, I don't know about this. And she's like, well, it's just kind of an obstacle in the way. And, and then they fall in love very rapidly and very quickly move in together or attempt to move in together and then very quickly have a falling out. And it is mentioned that they have been seeing each other for six weeks when they go apartment shopping together. That alone blew my mind like red flags everywhere like he's clearly we we know Hugh Jackman she's going to end up with Hugh Jackman we know he's the wrong guy from the beginning so there's that but the fact that they're shopping for apartments when he has a girlfriend of three years and you've been dating for six weeks he's dropped the I love you bomb and then rapidly bam he's ghosting her he's got cold feet uh they go out for dinner and he breaks up with her essentially which I know that's a trope, like going out for dinner and breaking up over dinner. For me, I would not want to be broken up with in a, like a fancy restaurant. That seems awful. It's not so much a trope as a thing that actually happens. I read all the time about people yeah. who um, get taken out on nice dates by their partner and then like immediately dumped or like they get ready and before they leave, they get dumped. The thing about the restaurant is uh, it's a tactic that people use sometimes because they think if you're out in public, then you're not going to make a scene. Because you don't want to like embarrass yourself or them because they are breaking up with you in public, and not everybody particularly cares. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a tactic that is used, but it's also something that comes up in movies a lot. Yeah, and I get, I get the whole like, oh, we're out at a fancy restaurant, you're not going to make a scene. But like, if you think you have to take your um, romantic interest to a restaurant to break up with them because you're worried they're going to make a scene, they're probably the kind of person that's going to make a scene regardless. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, and then you're just looking like that asshole in the middle of a fancy restaurant with a girl screaming at him and walking out on him. Anyways, I just thought that's just kind of a trope that always gets me. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the initial thing with uh, when Jane and Ray meet and she's talking to Liz, uh, who's Mar Marissa Tomei's character. It's an acknowledgement that there's like obvious chemistry there, but she's not going to do anything unless like something comes of it. And of course something does and it's never her initiation. Um, but yeah, I agree. It, it, it comes on very quickly. It's just like they meet. I have a girlfriend of three years. It's crazy. I made a note that, you know, it's a good thing that, or not, it's a good thing, um, you know, considering the fact that this movie is, like, so focused on the attraction part, it's really good that all of these actors have, like, really good chemistry, yeah. because um, 
Ashley Judd and Greg Kinnear as Jane and Ray, like right from the moment that they're on screen together first for the like first second is like there's you can sense the chemistry there. So it's really, really, really good. I also think that I kind of thought they had better chemistry than Hugh Jackman and her did. Honestly, (laughs) that's not wildly surprising. I think Jane and um, I forget what Hugh Jackman's character's name is. Eddie, um, they had good chemistry, but they had good, like, friendship chemistry. That's what I wrote down. Okay, let's just skip forward a little bit. So, Ray ends up ghosting her, uh, distancing himself, and then they kind of split off. And she ends up writing these articles for this magazine under this fake pseudonym, uh, kind of ranting about men and cows and things like this, and the cow theory. And she moves in apartments with uh, Eddie because she got ghosted by uh, Ray and now has nowhere to live because she got rid of her apartment after six weeks to move in with him. Which, again, six weeks. He had a girlfriend of three years. Red flags slow down. Slow down. Regardless. Uh, so she and Eddie are obviously, they're, they're bantering. They're, he's a slut. She doesn't like that about him. Um she thinks, or he thinks she's kind of like a prude or whatever. And and then they have that great kind of typical uh, rom-com banter and eventually like, oh, we didn't hate each other. We actually liked each other type of thing, right? Yeah. I mean, if he, if he was gay, then he would be like the gay best friend character. You know, he's the one that is supportive when she's crying and has all of the good advice and is just kind of like there to pick up the pieces. And is it necessarily the love interest? Yeah. Yeah. When they're getting to that romantic point, and especially that scene where um, I think it's after she is going to potentially get back with Ray and Ray stands her up again, and she kind of has this breakdown moment and in swoops Eddie to kind of comfort her. But all the, the energy in that scene is very much like we are two very good friends. Like, they kind of fall asleep in the bed, and he's comforting her, but it's, like, not a sexual energy at all. Um, Just the way they talk, I didn't get a lot of, like, that rom-com, like, we're feuding because we hate each other, but secretly it's passion and we love each other. It was very much like we're two very different friends, but we have this energy and connection. It had a little bit of a sibling vibe to it. Yes, it was very sibling vibe. Um, so I definitely, well, by the end of the movie, I didn't think they were bad as a couple, or I definitely got it by the end when they get together, they have the chemistry, but for a lot of the movie, I think it definitely works better as friends. Like I wrote down, like she didn't find a love by the end. She found a friend and then all the things she describes about like why she likes him are not romantic things. It's not like. It's like, I like you because you're just this really good friend. And I know that, like, the lines between friendship and romance, obviously, very blurry at times. And a lot of the qualities that make a good friend make a good partner. Um, But I think that was my big takeaway from it, is that 
they might have been better friends than anything. What did you think of the framing of the uh, story through like the different parts? There's like the initial attraction and then there's the establishment of intimacy, yeah. vocalization of emotion, like sort of the moving through their relationship in that sort of earmarked kind of way. It's one of those things where for me, if it's done, it needs to be done enough that it's a thing and it's like towards the beginning of the movie there was a few of them and then I think it falls off a lot till towards the end like it I like that trope and I liked the the way it was used here the framing I did keep track of what they were and I got up to current cow sob story which is towards the end and then I didn't notice any other ones I honestly can't remember like any of them off the top of my head they were very quick and yeah. Um, some of them were quite verbose. <laughs> yeah. I think they are mostly meant to sort of represent sections of an essay, like an academic paper. Yeah. And that's what I, that my main takeaway from that was that it was adding to the structure of um, like her articles she's writing. Yeah. I like that she's constantly got this notebook. She's jotting down these theories in and um, there was definitely elements here that took it from just like a very vanilla rom-com and added a little bit more context to it. I think Ashley Judd did a lot to make this work. Like you were saying, I think I, I don't remember seeing Ashley Judd in many things, but yeah. she definitely had a different vibe and energy to her than your typical rom-com lead. She wasn't this like clumsy, um, forgetful, like that kind of rom-com lead. Yeah. She was very Carrie, Carrie Bradshaw. I meant to say that. She's very proto, I don't know if this is before or during Sex and the City, but she's very Carrie Bradshaw. I think Sex and the City comes out in 2001, Maybe. so there might be a little bit of overlap there. She is monologues through a lot of this. It, she it A lot of her monologue reads like a Carrie typing on her little MacBook. Um, yeah. It's got that vibe to it for sure. And she's definitely a little bit of a Carrie, which I think is a good thing. I like that you circled back around to what kind of protagonist uh, she is, because I was thinking, um, just as I was reviewing my notes before we sat down here, that um, in contrast to Kate and Leopold, which of course we talked about in our first episode, um, Jane's job is never at issue. Like there's never any question of her giving up her career or being a more submissive woman yeah um like that's never a central conflict to her romantic problems like it's definitely the way that she, she doesn't have to immediately puts men up on this pedestal and like sort of um is five steps ahead yeah. in where the relationship starts than the person that she's in the relationship with so i thought that was like a very interesting contrast to kate and leopold where of course um kate works up to get the you know senior VP job and then throws it all the way to like go back in time a hundred years to like be with some guy. Oh boy, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. The, the The resolution of this movie was good, and I wasn't mad, which was nice. Uh, yeah, in terms of like how a rom com ends, it does feel like satisfying. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up, I was curious of your thoughts on this too, is. Uh, the amount of like heavy smoking and indoor smoking in this movie was like a wow for me, especially oh, yeah. like 2001, even like 
Like Hugh Jackman is always smoking, except it does not look like Hugh Jackman has ever smoked in his life. The way he like, like cartoony Popeye has the cigarette kind of oddly placed in his mouth, just kind of dangling all the time, never lit. Yeah, and there's um, the one scene at the beginning where like one of the other staff people is like, "Hey, this is a non-smoking biz- building," and he's yeah. like, "You know, buzz off." I think 2001 oh, yeah. is around the time that smoking in buildings was starting to be like legislated as a thing that you couldn't do. Yeah. So I think it was probably a nod to that, and also just sort of like the cultural shift where like smoking is not as common as it once was. But I definitely did think to myself while I was watching, I was like, man, there's like so much smoking in this movie. Maybe think about that conversation we had a little while ago about like how if you just removed smoking from movies, oh, yeah. historical or otherwise, like you probably just like wouldn't notice. I definitely, I definitely thought about that. Yeah, it was, it was something. It kind of brings me around a little bit to the interesting thing I found about um, Hugh Jackman's Eddie as the romantic lead in this was he was such a man slut, like specifically called out for it. I love the line where um, uh, he comes into work with like this massive hickey and he just goes, I bit myself, myself shaving. I bit myself shaving is such an iconic line. Uh, yeah, it was truly fantastic. Great. Yeah. It's great. Uh, but like he and all the smoking and everything by the end of the movie, he doesn't have to reform. He's not this like, oh, I got to fix him. Like he's a he's a broken man that I need to fix. Like there's a little bit of that with like his ex that's kind of, I guess, turned him into a man slut. But it's never really a specific thing that like Jane has to like fix him or change him really. Yeah, I mean, nice. there's an acknowledgement that like his promiscuity really comes down to with him dealing with difficult emotions and that's just like how he's doing it because everybody deals with a broken heart and like copes with their emotions in different ways and that's just how he's doing it and he's not going to apologize for it which is something that we afford to male characters much more than we do to female characters for sure um a couple of things just in terms of like dialogue pieces that i really loved um i bit myself shaving is obviously an iconic one. Um, another one that I have a note of is when she goes to visit her sister and her brother-in-law and her sister goes, for God's sake, if you can't stick it in a Valencia, how are you going to stick it in my ass? <laughs> that whole side uh... story with like her sister and her brother-in-law, like dealing with the in vitro and their fertility issues and like him just being a really great support for her, like the whole time was so nice. Like at the end, you know, she's in the hospital and he's with her and he like brought her all of this stuff. And he's just like being such a great guy. And I feel like, you know, he's really doing sort of like the bare minimum for me to say that. But at the same time, it's just like, it's really nice to have a married couple in a movie who's like not being portrayed as people who hate each other, which is so common and so frustrating. Yeah. The side plots definitely in this were, um, like, I liked that side plot. I, I wanted to know a bit more, honestly, about them. Like, they were, from the few scenes we got of the, the sister and him, they were quite strong characters and just, like, that little bit of time we got. And even Liz, the best friend, her whole kind of off-screen side plot about the man she falls in love with who's cheating on her and all this. And I know that, like, the best friend character in 
these rom-coms is never really gets the like a satisfying subplot at all mm-hmm. but you feel for her because Marissa Tomei is so great right um and you just want more one thing that I hate in a lot of these movies with respect to the the best friend and also in this movie specifically is the way that like both the main character and the best friend are always like men are the worst love is garbage yeah and they're always in it together until like the other person falls in love and then yeah. it's immediately like love is the best and everything i've ever said before is just in the past and don't ever mention it to me and then it's like a full 180 as soon as the relationship ends it would be nice if somebody was just like reasonable to be like yeah like some guys are terrible but also you know like maybe you're part of the problems or come at it from a more realistic perspective i know that's too real for rom-com but i i did really like i wrote down i liked uh how uh liz really confronted jane about like hey the world does not revolve around you and your romance and there's like that moment where she's like things happen with me i have a life like all we talk about is you and this stupid guy and yeah it was like a nice little thing to add in there. I think that might have been the same time that the phrase romantic atheism was thrown around, which I wrote down, and I don't remember the context, but I thought it was great. I think the romantic atheism line is with respect to Eddie. Um, they're in a bar, and she says oh, something yeah, about yeah, romantic yeah. atheism. Yeah. Uh, I know there are a couple of places where Liz kind of confronts um, Jane about sort of the precariousness of her relationship where it's like, well, he's not sleeping with you. He's sleeping with someone else, um, which is to suggest that like men are philanderers, regardless of what kind of situation they're in. But um, Jane really does like bend over backwards to justify race behavior. You know, oh, like, Oh, he's in a really complicated God. situation when he like hasn't broken up with his girlfriend. All they needed to do was stretch it out. They needed to be dating for more than six weeks. They just needed to make it like, montage us a bit more like oh we had a great six months to a year where we like were in this great relationship and everything was going great and then things change like six weeks is just a hard pill for me to swallow that like she is so broken up about this guy and willing to jump right back the minute he like even looks at her i will say this about greg kinnear as an actor though in this particular role he's kind of got like that handsome bashfulness to him that really makes him a good uh, actor for these kinds of roles where somebody falls in love with him sort of inexplicably. He's got that look about him where I feel like if I was in a similar situation, I would probably feel the same way if that was a thing that I would do. Like if I was going to fall in love with somebody or fall in lust with somebody rather, regardless of the fact that they're in a long-term committed relationship, like he might be the kind of person that I would do it with. Oh, for sure. So just going back to... Uh, Jane and Eddie becoming a thing at the end and their whole friendship sibling vibe throughout the whole thing. Uh, A step away from that, I said it was almost amazing that Eddie and Jane end up together at all with the way that Jane is constantly pathologizing the behavior of men at every turn because it seems to grate on Eddie so much the way that she's trying to like categorize everything and like isn't considering the behavior of herself or like other women or anything like that. So it's like all of a sudden, Oh, they're together, which is a week, of course, the classic trademark of the rom-com. Yeah. It's a very, uh, men are from Mars. Women are for Venus era movie for sure. 
Um, I was listening to a different podcast um, that I was telling you about earlier. Uh, you're wrong about. They were doing an episode on um, the alpha and the weird way that humans tend to apply theories of animal behavior to themselves. And I was thinking about that a lot while I was watching this with like the old cow theory, because like cows are bovine and really are not in any way similar to humans in terms of like social behaviors. So, I mean, just because she was reading this article and she saw some similarities between her experiences didn't necessarily mean that the theory was perfectly applicable. Okay. So on our ketchup meter, uh, what do you think? Is uh, it perfect as is? Does it need a little ketchup or should you douse it? Uh, you definitely don't have to douse the movie. I would say for a 2001 rom-com, I don't think un- it needed a lot of ketchup at all, but I would definitely put a little bit of ketchup on it. I think really all it needed for me was changes in the Ray subplot to make her decisions and her actions a little more realistic to me. But honestly, it's it's on the line there. It's almost perfect as is, just for what it is. Yeah, I, I would agree with just a little catch-up. Um, definitely with respect to the Ray storyline. Almost would prefer that she didn't end up with anybody at the end. Which is a big. It, yeah, well, that's not I realize it's a big wish, but, yeah. but I feel like that might actually make the most sense in terms of the narrative. It, it but needs to do a little bit more. Um, what's our What's that favorite movie with Dakota Johnson? That oh, uh, How to Be Single. It needs to do a little How to Be Single. God, I love that. It movie. really <laughs> is so good. We should talk about that in a separate ep- really episode. Is. We should. <laughs> Uh, any other thoughts on someone like you? Uh, Hugh Jackman's great. That's my thought. Oh, I was. My last thought is I think it's very interesting that in both Kate and Leopold and someone like you, we have a scene where Hugh Jackman has like a platonic sleep situation with it's the female lead. A dream for everyone. So, makes sense. Okay, so for my pick this week, uh, I chose The Importance of Being Earnest. Uh, it's a 2002 movie directed by um, Oliver Parker. He's done a few other things I've seen, specifically um, St. Trinian's, which I remember loving but do not remember anything about. Um, some Hellraiser movies... Dorian Gray, another Oscar Wilde play turned into a movie, and Johnny English Reborn. Um, So the tomato meter for this movie is a sad 57%, which should be more than that. Just going to put that out there. Um, And as I mentioned, this is based on an Oscar Wilde uh, play, a great comedy of errors type a mistaken identity plots where a man who tries to escape from the country under the pretense of having um, a, is it a brother? Yes. Named Ernest um, in the city. And then it's just that classic mistaken Shakespearean identity plots. That is something. Um, so I picked this one because I 
was obsessed with this movie in high school after reading The Importance of Being Earnest, and my school did a production of The Importance of Being Earnest, and just finding out about Oscar Wilde, kind of becoming obsessed with him and his works, and uh, kind of pre-coming out, being obsessed with Oscar Wilde, there were some signs there, but it is a wonderful play, and a wonderful movie adaptation, in my opinion. So what did you think of The Importance of Being Earnest? I liked it a lot. It was a lot of fun. Um, actually, I remember when this movie came out and seeing advertisements for it all over the place and having absolutely no idea what it was about. Um, it definitely is in that genre of like Jane Austen-esque type things that I wasn't really that interested in when I was like 13 years old, which is a strange thing to say when you are a female person <laughs> in this day and age who most of which seem to be obsessed with those types of movies, but that was never my thing. But no, I had a lot of fun. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned, um, you know, the mistaken identity Shakespearean stuff, because there was a lot of it while I was watching it. And I was like, it reminds me of this, or it reminds me of that. Um, specifically reminded me a little bit of uh, Midsummer Night's mm-hmm. Dream in, you know, the two uh, female characters, like, thinking that they are in love with the opposite person and then, um, you know, being denied marriage as a result of a yeah, thing. Yeah, very 12th, 12th and also, night as well. Yeah, I was just going to say, it also reminds me a lot of 12th night where you're pretending to be somebody that you're not. You could use so. more cross-dressing, but, you know, nothing's perfect. I was thinking it would be really interesting to see this adapted in a modern setting, um, but I, I like where they were. I think it was sort of like early 19th century is where we were sitting for this one and that worked really well it's definitely one of those it requires the lack of technology to really work yeah i mean i'm not i don't necessarily want it to be super super modern but i think it would be interesting to do you know i mean i guess if you did it in a more modern setting it would be like a catfish sort of situation which could be fun if done well Um, initial thoughts. I really loved Rupert Everett right from the beginning. Uh, my first note was just like handsome, oh. rich layabout. Um, not knowing anything about going into the movie, I immediately thought that his character was Ernest, which I think was done well, given that oh, we're so expected you, to. You'd never, you'd never read or seen the no, play. No, I didn't know anything about it going okay. into it other than what little you had told me about it. Got it. Um, and it still held up. Yeah, I, all of the characters were great. Um, Judy Dench was fantastic. Um, I loved Gwendolyn as character. I think almost all of my notes oh, are about Frank. Gwendolyn's behavior throughout Frances it. Frances O'Connor as Gwendolyn. Oh, like my the first God. time we meet her so and she's talking to Ernest and she, yeah. Um, yeah. I forget what the. I love the premise that like she's obsessed with just the the name Ernest, that she loves him because his name is Ernest. And the point that his name has to be Ernest is just such a far-fetched concept, but she sells it so well, and the movie does such a good job of it. It's like, I had a vision when I was a child that I would marry a man named Ernest, and it's so lucky that your name is Ernest. And you're like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. It's great. And then... Reese Witherspoon's character of Cecily having the exact same kind of fascination with the name Ernest as uh, Rupert Everett's Algie yeah. goes under the name Ernest when he goes to the country. And it's just the mirroring of those plots is so well done. Yeah. 
I really liked when we first meet Gwendolyn and uh, Jack as Ernest um, tells her that she's perfect and she goes, I hope not, as that leaves no room for development and I intend to develop in many directions. Just like everything about everybody's character interaction is like so laden with innuendo. The wit, the innuendo, the snappiness of the dialogue, it's so good. I particularly enjoyed Cicely's daydreams, like being trapped out in the country, being forced to learn like German and other things that she doesn't care about and like always envisioning the shining, the the knight in shining armor, like emerging suddenly through the bushes to like save her from Mm -hmm. her drab countryside life. We're just so good. I also like when she's with Algy as Ernest and she's like imagining him as the knight and he's like with her, but like not Mm -hmm. aware of her daydream scenario or a lot of fun. I love the idea that like, (laughs) She hasn't even met this guy yet, uh, the brother Ernest, and and he's clearly at first just kind of trying to woo her because of money, I suppose. Is that why? I think partly yes, but also just because Jack has told him that he's not allowed to meet her, and so he's trying to be defiant of of this, like, you're not allowed to meet her or know her, like, I'm trying to protect her from you your um which is why i think they work out so well together because before she's even met him they've already in her mind been engaged for four months and the engagement has been broken off and like that whole thing was so good like we've already been engaged for three months and i've already broken it off and he's like why would you break it off it's not a real engagement unless it's been broken off at least once like okay i guess reese witherspoon honestly like a lot of her early roles, she doesn't get enough credit for how great she is in, in things. Everyone in this cast is just amazing, honestly. Oh, That's everybody my, really my commits. biggest takeaway from it. Yeah, everybody really commits to yeah. their role. Uh, I think this movie is like, um, God, Colin Firth at his prime. And I know that might mm, be controversial yeah. to say, but I think in terms of like his age and acting, like... There's, like, Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice, which holds a special place in my heart. But I think at, like, this point in his career, he's sort of, like, peak Hugh Dancy. Or, sorry, not Hugh Dancy. Different actor. Colin Firth. Yeah. I like uh, Judy Dench. Just to kind of go back to her for a minute. I mean, she steals this movie. Every scene she is in, she steals. Um, she's played this character multiple times. Um, she was great fit for this. I love where she's interviewing um, Colin's Jack, or as Ernest at this point, um, to see if he's potentially could marry um, a Gwendolyn. And the, the, some of the questions are hilarious. Like, uh, do you know everything or nothing? <laughs> he's like, uh, I know nothing, Lady Brackle. It's like, good. <laughs> like, I forgot what the exact line is. Ignorance like, is like a delicate, exotic fruit. I wrote it down yes. because I was like, LOL, yes. okay. <laughs> just, sure. Just the whole interview was so hilarious and great. All the questions she asks. It's just like that that like old money like snobbery is so great. When he her. reveals that he's an orphan and that he doesn't know where he's from and that she's like, you can't like say that your <laughs> only um, origin is like... Um, like a suitcase at the train st- like the whole thing is just it's like a, it's a handbag everybody has to come from somewhere like jesus lady it's not that important i mean it's important the handbag 
The handbag plot point was hilarious. I love how it comes back in the end. The whole resolution to the whole movie is great. Yeah, the hand the handbag was definitely the Chekhov's gun in this one, and it definitely had payoff at the end. Yeah. One thing I really liked was um, the the hate towards like the three volume novel, and then um, mm, the tutor yeah. being like, "Do not speak lightly of the." three volume novel because obviously she's written one which of course we yeah learn later she has and that it's just as terrible as one might expect the miss prism character upon this rewatch i didn't take a ton of note of miss prism uh, before but like that whole subplot with her she's great her and the reverend or the doctor really was just job. yes yeah so good who's like constantly just affected by the weather so much um, there was the one scene where I made a note and I was just like, did Gwendolyn straight up just get Ernest tattooed on her ass? And like later, yes, she did. Also at the end of the movie, the fact that he also gets her name tattooed on his ass, like what kind of narrative point is that? It's just so bizarre, but so truly ridiculous and perfect. I think one thing that really stands out about, um, this specifically and like it being a play written at the time it was written is how modern and strong these female characters are in this play and how much agency they have. Like they really have all the agency in this. It's the female characters that run it. Yes, absolutely. I like that this kind of the last third act when the idea that Gwendolyn and Cecily, uh, like they're going to be sisters when they meet, they're going to love each other. And then, Instantly upon meeting, they're, like, so sweet. And then they all of a sudden realize they're both in love with someone named Ernest. They're both engaged to someone named Ernest, who they think is the same Ernest, instantly sour on each other. And then the second they find out it's two different Ernests and that the this whole trick that's been played on them, they're instantly best friends again. And it's great. Everything that happens in, like, that first act definitely comes to play in the last act, where... When Ern- like Jack is Ernest is meeting Algie in London, and he's talking about if Gwendolyn and Cecily ever met, they'd be like sisters. And Algie goes, "Oh, they would hate each other first, and then they'd be like sisters," which is exactly what happens. So like, yeah. there's a lot of like yeah. the entire story is kind of immediately set up in that first act, and then it just kind of plays out exactly as um, laid out. All the little parts with food in this were really good too. Uh, like the the serving of cake and tea. Yeah, Cecily being like the most petty TM when Gwendolyn is like, oh, sugar is out of fashion. So she puts like four sugar cubes in her tea and like stares like straight tens. at her. Well, however many, but it's you know, great. she's like staring straight at her like, oh, sugar is out of fashion. Well, she's like dumping sugar into her tea. Just yeah. so good. Yeah. And then the whole muffin thing <laughs> with, with um, LG yeah. and Jack just yeah. yeah. How can you sit there calmly eating muffins when we're in this horrible trouble? Well, I can't eat muffins in an agitated manner. The butter would probably get on my cuffs. One should always eat muffins quite calmly. <laughs> it's the only way to eat them. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, the banter is just so great. Honestly, looking at quotes, there's just so many good quotes from this whole thing. Yeah, I made a note. It would hardly be a serious engagement if it hadn't been broken off at least once, which we already touched on. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, all of the all of the quotes that I sort of particularly liked, um, I've mentioned already. I especially liked at the end when you know the importance of being earnest um, 
is still mm. at play and they're looking up to find out what his what Jack's father's first name was so that he could um, make sure that it's what it's supposed to be and it's like in that moment that he decides like it doesn't matter I'm going to be my own person I want to marry Gwendolyn my name is Ernest and anybody who says differently can go fuck themselves yeah I think in the play if I'm remembering correctly it's I don't think it's super insinuated that his name isn't Ernest. I think like that is like that final twist is, oh, his name actually is Ernest. That was his name. And that's kind of like the funny, ha ha ha, his his name actually was Ernest the whole time of it all. But I almost like it better in this where he fakes it and just chooses his name. Yeah, I think like taking ownership of your own identity um, after, you know, basically having to do so your entire life up until this point feels much more satisfactory than like oh actually his name has been Ernest this whole time it's like if it means that much to the woman that you love and for your own identity to be that person then you just be that person and all the dream sequences of Cecily's obviously are also an additive for the movie not something they would do on stage I thought those worked really well like all the adaptations from this scene this staged a few times as a play I think they used the medium of the movie very, very well. Even just the set they got for the country home was so mm-hmm. good. Yeah, the the coloration of the movie, like the, the brightness of the colors was really um, yeah. beautiful. Like the whole movie is really it visually really stunning. The costumes are great. Every dress that Lady Bracknell wears being so ostentatious. I said these stories have so much awkward matchmaking. Um, and part of that was like, with the tutor and the doctor where you know it's like oh the doctor said that he wants to see you here and then like in the yeah, and it's like so obvious that they're into each other but it's so awkward as they're like not admitting it to themselves not yeah. admitting it out loud but like everybody can say see it on the face of it and then you know like algae's trying to court cecily as um earnest and like Jack is Ernest is like trying to court Gwendolyn and it's just like this whole it's great. And of course it's a true comedy because it ends in a multiple marriages. Oscar Wilde taking a note from Shakespeare in that regard. It's very Shakespearean for sure. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts in the movie? I think we mostly captured it. Um, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I think now that I've seen it, it's probably something that I might return to. It's just like a feel-good mm-hmm. thing to put on. Uh, just because it's it's very over-the-top, sort oh, of. for sure. Yeah. I will definitely add as well. Um, so when I went to go see this movie, I have a DVD copy I found at Stelly Village uh a few months ago maybe which is kind of what sparked this is my choice and i went to pop it open to stick it in to watch it for this there was no dvd inside i did not check it before i bought it secondhand that there was actually something in the dvd case so now i just own a case for this movie that's so disappointing it's very disappointing i need to find this movie again um so what would your rating be is it perfect as is could it use a little ketchup or would you douse it I think it's perfect as is. Um, It's a really good adaptation from an existing work. And the casting and everything just like really, really uh, worked for this kind of story. And it's just like a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I agree. I think it's perfect as is. Like, there's no person in the cast for me that stood out as not quite doing as good or not rising to the level of everyone else. And when you've got, like, Rupert Everett and Judy Dench, you really have to, like, rise to that level because they're both doing a lot. Um, I thought everyone rose to that level. It also really helps that there's only, like, really five characters yeah, on screen at any given time, except for... A very faithful adaptation of the play. Some of, like, the... Yeah, other than, like, the background staff at the yeah. at the Country Manor and, like, the background characters at the club when they're in London who don't really add much to the film overall. Like, the main cast is really, really yeah, strong. Yeah, and uh, LG's, LG's Butler as well, who um, one of my best friends played in our high school production who I thought was hilarious in it. Uh, much smaller role than I remember. Yeah, um, they're fantastic. Just, like, putting up with Algie's antics the whole way through. Oh, is yeah. just a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that's it for us this episode. Join us again when we catch up on another movie and with each other.